Welcome to The Landscape, a Cranes Cleveland podcast. I'm your host, Dan Paletta. Glad you can join us. Each year, Crane celebrates women whose dedication and achievements enrich Northeast Ohio, its institutions, and its people with its Women of Note ceremony, selected by a panel of Crane's editors. This year, we honor 15 women of note at a virtual ceremony coming up on July 21st at 4 p.m. You can register online if you'd like to attend. Just visit cranescleveland.com. I'm joined by four women of note from the 2021 class. Sarah Flannery is a partner with Thompson Hine. Shamika Jones-Taylor is the vice president of the Corporate Work Study Program at St. Martin de Porres High School. Marcia Moreno is the president and founder of Amore Consulting, and Cheryl Stevens is president and CEO of the East Akron Neighborhood Development Corporation. She's also the vice president of the Cuyahoga County Council. Welcome, everybody. Glad you can join us. Sarah, let me start with you. You've really made employment immigration practice at Thompson Hine really sustainable. How did you go about doing that? Thanks, Dan, for hosting. At Thompson Hine, we have always had a focus on innovation and being able to adjust our service delivery model to match what clients need. And when I was introduced to the immigration practice early in my career, I really fell in love with it. But to make it sustainable, we needed to move to a flat fee billing system, which today we have many practices at Thompson Hine that are on flat fees. But at that time, there weren't very many. So we were one of the first practice groups to introduce flat fee billing, which gives certainty to the clients for what their spend will be. It allows them to predict for the future for companies that have large global mobility programs. And then in order to make the flat fees work for the firm, we needed to have a leveraged staffing model within the organization. So between the leveraged staffing model and the flat fees, it made it a scalable practice that we've been able to grow year after year. Can you tell us a bit more about Thompson Hines Spotlight on the Women Initiative, which you helped launch? Sure. We were a pace setter in that way as well. Um, when I joined Thompson Hine in 2002, it was shortly thereafter that the Women's Initiative was launched by part, women partners across the firm. And we have done both external programming to bring events to women in the business communities where we practice. And we have also done internal programming to help attract, recruit, and develop women within our firm. One of the programs that I've been most delighted to support over the years is a high potential program where we bring together women attorneys across all of our eight offices for professional development and peer-to-peer relationship building. And it's been a great success in helping to launch many of our women alum of the class into the partnership. Shamika, a lot of folks have to go to work every day and they're not so crazy about their jobs. You've called your work at St. Martin de Porres uh, High School the most fulfilling work you've ever done. Why is it so special for you? Thank you, Dan, for hosting us and congratulations to everyone. It's an honor to be here. The work is really fulfilling to me, Dan, because as I reflect on my life and my life story, I recognize that it's institutions of education and networks like Crystal Ray that literally help students who come from very similar stories and very similar backgrounds as myself. Literally being born and raised in the city of Cleveland my entire life, the child of a mother who was a single parent. I like to say she had one job per child. Um, Our network exists literally to even the playing fields and provide a private quality education 
to students and families who otherwise couldn't afford it, and to do so by may and means of them being able to earn their high school education. It's a wonderful thing. Instead of, you know, so many times people talk about things and people getting handouts, well, our students are going to work every single day and they're earning this private high school education. In addition to the work you do at St. Martin de Porres, you're also the pastor or a pastor at the Great Mitchell Chapel AME Church in Mansfield. How do you juggle those two? That seems like a your job would take enough of your time that you're also a minister. Yes. So the most important thing is always the people in your team that you have working with you. I certainly don't do this alone. I have a wonderful team at St. Martin and I have a wonderful team at Greater Mitchell Chapel AME. And I was sharing yesterday, just in fact, with someone that the biggest investment you can make is in the persons that are working alongside with you. And so as their leader in both the church and at St. Martin, it's my job to make sure and ensure that they're reaching their greatest leadership capacities. And so that's how we're able to do everything that we do. That's how we're able to serve uh, my husband and I as the head of the church and as well as just serving as the vice president. It's a team effort. It's about building your team and empowering your team. Cheryl, let me ask you, you gave a copy of The Little Engine That Could to each of the 50 employees at the East Akron Neighborhood Development Corporation. I love that book Was when I was a kid. Why did you pass it on to these adults? Because it sometimes helps to remember things that are most important to us always. That we, if we believe we can and invest in ourselves correctly, we can do things we never envisioned ourselves doing. And because Housing development is never a one-person task. There's every task from pulling the financing together to structure the building to making sure that it stays a quality unit, which is really in the hands of my team who does maintenance and property management. And so I wanted everyone to feel like they were part of the team that made this all move forward. And our portfolio is growing because everyone believes they can at EANBC. You've seen the legacy of redlining in your work. I'm sure most of the listeners at Landscape are familiar with what that means, but for those who aren't, can you explain what it is and how it's motivated to combat its effects? Redlining is when uh, financing institutions, whether they're banks, credit unions, uh, bond houses, look at neighborhoods and decide based on race, ethnic heritage, uh, economic status, that they won't lend in the area even if there is value there because people keep buying units and investing in them. Typically, they discount what you invest. Most Americans will overinvest in their kitchens and bathrooms. And uh, even if a series of homeowners have done those kinds of things when they go to have an appraisal to do a line of equity or to refinance or for the sale of the home, things will be devalued. Most recently, we have seen in some of the most largest papers in our, in our country, the Washington Post, the New York Times, uh, both Seattle and, and uh, Portland, and one of the larger newspapers in Texas have given us anecdotal stories where uh, a mixed-race couple might go to sell their house, and if the wife is African-American, when she meets with an appraiser, the house is valued $150,000 less than when her husband meets with the appraiser and he's white. Or when uh, a Black family removes all pictures of themselves and family members from the house and has a white friend show the appraisal around the house, in one case, the uh, value was almost a million dollars more than what the black family was told that they could um, sell the house for. 
these kinds of things impact the quality of life of Americans and how they can build wealth. Because for the average American, there are two ways to build wealth toward retirement, a pension fund or 401k, and then their home. Because let's face it, the home is the most expensive item we'll ever buy. And so we put money into it over time. And what most of us were told in undergrad school in the business finance classes that we took was that houses appreciate, real estate appreciates, but that's not necessarily true if you're African-American in this country. It keeps you from building wealth. And that's why most recently we found that there is a wealth gap between African-Americans and white Americans or Americans of color, because where we live in areas where we're close to each other, our properties are devalued and it's based on race and it's based on things that happened uh, around World War II and financing that was prejudicial at the top levels, uh, the FHA and financing for returning war veterans. Um, it is just appalling what has been done historically in this country to keep African-Americans from building wealth. So what's the best way to combat that? There are a series of ways, in my opinion. Um, one of them I'm championing as I sit at, um, on a county council in Cuyahoga County. We are looking at at um, how to make sure that lenders do more in core city marketplaces like the city of Cleveland and the um, inner ring suburbs, which are mature. And especially on the east side, a predominance of our people of color live in Cuyahoga County. And we see neighborhoods that are close, that are adjacent, contiguous, or abutting to Cleveland or East Cleveland where property values are lower than when the same house is in a neighborhood further away, like on the eastern side of Shaker or Beechwood or University Heights. Uh, this built by the same contractor, comparable ages, and their values may be fifty to one hundred thousand dollars apart. Uh, and for example, I live in Forest Hill, and our housing values are lower than houses built about the same time in Shaker. Uh, there's one reason. Consistently, when we do the same kind of maintenance and investment, it is color. And so we're asking lenders to take a look at it. I've also had conversations recently with the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, which is easier for people in Northeast Ohio since the former Congresswoman Marsha Fudge is now the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. So she has said that she and the President of the United States are both interested in the impact of appraisals on the values of homes for people of color. And I recently asked um, Senator Sherrod Brown to take a look at it with the, uh, with the Senate Banking and Housing Committee. So we're asking at the highest levels they take a look at it because one of the things appraisers at a local level will tell us is the regs guide me to do it this way. That's not always true. And we also find that there are a limited number of people of color and women in the appraisal industry. And so we want to find ways to open that industry up so that more we know what happens when people of color become participants in the process. And women, we know that their dialogue helps people understand better how we really do business. There are myths about how Black folks um, maintain their homes. They're myths. We invest in our homes. We do new kitchens and bathrooms. We uh, learn how to landscape. It's just old biases that take generations to eliminate when people aren't open to listen to change. That's what I do for a living. 
um, help people learn why affordable housing is not negative for neighborhoods. I help people as an elected official understand that investing in communities is incredibly important. And what we understand historically in this country is that while there are good people of every race, the institutions have racism built into them. And what we have to do today and in our future is begin to invest in making sure that there are the correct and same opportunities for all Americans, because we know that one of the things that all Americans dream about is having a decent education, a decent job, and a decent home to live in. Marcia, let's talk to you for a moment. Your own experience as a Chilean immigrant informed your decision to create Amor Consulting to make Northeast Ohio and beyond Latino ready. What led to that? Sure. Thank you for the invite, um, Dan. So, yes, I arrived in Cleveland, Ohio, directly from Concepcion, Chile in 2005. I'm a journalist. I studied journalism in Chile. I was coming to do pursue my master's degree here at Cleveland State. I was educated. I came with work experience. I was fully bilingual. And still, right, I come here and I face and I found, found this wall of misunderstanding, some ignorance, lack of education, like lack of awareness. And I personally still felt like even though I had all of that to bring to the table, to bring to the country, um, I had a hard time kind of fitting everywhere and anywhere and feel like I was always an outsider and just, you know, misunderstood and a stereotype. Um, so, so some of that, um, was frustrating. Um, some of that fueled me in who I am and how I became, you know, a professional and now a business owner. Um, because in a way, I was able to use that and 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 kind of understand that even though I, I do bring that to the table, not everybody really knows here in the United States what it means to be Latino. We're still, you know, misunderstood as being seen as poor, as uneducated, as the ones that need to be fixed, as the one that needs support. And um, even though we are in many ways behind in many aspects, we also have a lot to offer. And actually, when I came to the United States and to Cleveland, all of my friends were as educated or even more educated than me. And for some reason, that wasn't being what people saw or thought about Latinos. So I kind of made it my mission to really expand the awareness around who Latinos are. And mind you too, right, for the listeners, Latino, Hispanic, Latinx, whatever term you want to call us, is something that was created in the United States. It doesn't even mean anything for us that come from a Latin American country. So we come here and suddenly we are kind of put into these boxes because the U.S. is obsessed with categorizing things and making everything fit into something, right? And we don't. We don't fit. And we actually, we don't want to fit anymore. Maybe past generations wanted to assimilate and acculturate and forget their roots. That's no longer the case. So I, I, I guess what I saw was just a multitude of elements that made me realize that you know, we needed to increase the awareness around who we are as a community, understanding our diversity, complexity, different experiences as Latinos, but also also 
provide the opportunities for the companies to increase that awareness, to really understand who we are. So I created and more. Um, I help organizations become Latino ready at two kind of levels, right? At the organizational level, but also at the Latino professional level. And some of the programming I offer, it's really always around those two elements. Um, and there's just one more piece I want to bring that, um, that it's important to also understand when we talk about Latinos is that usually the conversations around equity, inclusion, diversity tend to be centered around black and white conversation, which is a very important conversation. And we need to talk about that. But we Latinos tend to be, we're in the middle, right? We're the brown, we're the forgotten, the afterthought, the ones that become kind of invisible, lumped into, again, the minority or the people of color. And the reality is that we're a lot more complex than that. And organizations need to be intentional around understanding who we are, how we show up, how we behave, how we lead to really truly take advantage of this group, which we are the fastest growing demographic group in the country. We're going to be 30% of the population in a few years. And all type of minorities are going to become the majority by, you know, 2044. So we, we need to start getting ready. Many employers can't find qualified employees to fill job vacancies. Do you see any changes in immigration policy that might help solve that problem? Well, I thought a lot about this question, Dan, because I personally think employers cannot find talent because they are really not looking hard enough or they don't know how to look and they just post, post a job and pray um, because they are very reactive and they want short-term solutions. And the reality is that the issues are going to be solved with a lot of more systemic and proactive approaches, right? The issues are a lot more complex and systemic than that. But that's another podcast. That's, that's another conversation. Um, as we relate to, as, as we talk about immigration, though, I think it's yes and no. I mean, immigrants uh, will continue being a part of the fabric of this nation. And one of the most important sources of innovation, of diverse thinking, of resourcefulness, right? Um, I don't want to generalize here, but speaking from my experience as an immigrant, most of the times immigrants decide to come to the country, to leave their countries behind and make the best out of their new country. So we want to be here. We want to work hard. We want to contribute to the country. So if you think about that, yes, we will be really supporting all type of employers if they want to give us a chance. But then that's the other side of the equation, right? Um, because in a way, immigration by itself, just bringing more people is not going to solve the issues, right? It's not just a matter of recruiting or having of having more bodies to come to the U.S. It's also a matter of inclusion, of retention, of really understanding what you need for what you need as an organization to make everyone feel included and heard. The, we tend here in the United States, we, we, we're proud to say that we want to find the best fit for the organization. We're finding the talent that is the best fit. Well, guess what? If you want employees to fit, go and find clones. You're not going to have innovation. You're going to have diverse thinking, new products. You're not going to be able to serve your market if everybody's the same and fit. We need other blood Bring, brought to the table. And at the same time, you need to create systems and strategies that are going to allow those people to feel like they can be themselves and bring you their ideas and bring you, you know, their opinions and their perspectives. Otherwise, it's just not 
really going to work and the organizations are going to end up without talent and without a market, right? And also it's important to remember that even though immigration has been important in the past in the United States, um, the growth of the population in the U.S. has been due mostly through birth not immigration. Whether the country is open or not to immigration, the country is growing because of the birth of particularly minorities, multiracial and Latinos. So consider that those are U.S. citizens, but they have a different identity and a different um, ethnicity. And, and that's also going to help um, support some of the, the lack of, of employment or, um, or employees that we're currently facing. We've talked enough serious business. Uh, Sarah, let's talk some things that aren't so serious, perhaps. You grew up in a household of five siblings. So were you, since you ended up being an attorney, were you the one who negotiated between the brothers and sisters? <laughs> no, what's interesting is when I went to law school, I was the first in my family to pursue that career. I did not have any lawyers in the family growing up. But since then, I've had two of my four brothers go on to also become attorneys. Um, growing up, I was the second of the six. And we are all very close in age. My parents had six children in nine years. So there's not a real big um, age difference. I wasn't the one negotiating amongst them, but I was put into a position of having to help mentor them because my mom pursued her college degree only after the youngest of the six was in school full time. And that's when my mom went back to school to get a nursing degree. At that time, I was in junior high, so I had to take on a lot of the responsibilities of housekeeping and helping with the kids to enable her the time to focus on school. So I do think that my spot in the sibling ranking um, probably helped me mature more quickly and be able to succeed in law school. That's interesting. Your mom went back at that point to school. Was that a difficult thing for the family You know, to negotiate all of that? Well, it was terribly difficult for her. You know, she's she and my dad are raising six children. My dad was a nursing home administrator, so he had a demanding job. And, you know, here she is pursuing a college degree for the first time. But what it did do is really enforce in all of us the value of education and getting your education early if you have the opportunity to do that. All six of our children, all six of the siblings have college degrees, three are lawyers, one has an MBA. And what it has done for me is helped shape my philanthropy and my community service. And where I have focused a lot of that is with CSU and creating opportunities to offer a pathway to education. You know, as Shamika had said, that education can really be the opportunity to change your position in life and allow you greater opportunities. And that has been a focus of mine when it comes to community service and philanthropy is how can we create those opportunities for more people? Shimka, how about you? You thought about originally becoming a politician. Why did you want to do that? And then why did you decide against it? I did. So the biggest thing and at the root of it and the root of who we are is service. So my mother had a sign in the kitchen that said, if you need anything, just ask. And if you understood literally where she stood on the economic level in our country, that sign would be hilarious, right? But that's who she is, and that's who she raised us to be. And so 
being born and raised in Cleveland, I love Cleveland, all things Cleveland. And when I was going off to school, the only thing I could think of for me uh, political service, right? Being a states person was the best thing you could do to serve your city. It allowed you to be a part of every fabric of your city, to be a part of touching the residents and impacting their lives, to be a part of the legislation and the decisions that would happen. And I was just enamored with it. And so when I went to Baldwin Wallace for undergrad and I took classes and got to meet people like George Forbes and Dennis Kucinich and other Sherrod Brown, and I was head of the Democratic Party. I was well on my way. And at the time, one of my mentors said to me, Shamika, I really think you would be fantastic as someone to serve our city in an administrative capacity. You've got a wonderful strategic mind. You're able to execute. You know, political leaders really need persons behind them, behind the scenes to get the work done. And I thought about it and I thought about all of what you have to do to be in politics, how you give up your life and, you know, your just your privacy. And I said, you know what? I think they're right. I think I'll try the, the service piece and work behind the scenes. So it's the best of both worlds. You get to see all of the things and you get to have an even greater impact because you're bringing other streams to fruition. So that's how I was comfortable with making that change. Cheryl, apparently you and I are neighbors. I live one block away from Forest Hill and you and I like a, a similar spot. Quintana's, you like to go over there for, you say, comfort drinks. What's your favorite? Uh, New York Sour. Literally, I walk in the door and they prepare me a New York Sour. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> <you> know? <laughs> I have a limit. I can only have two unless I'm eating dinner. And so since they don't serve dinner, I've never had more than two there because they're pretty strong drinks. So the, the reality is that occasionally in days filled with issues like uh, my colleague here and I face, you need something comfortable to take care of you. And uh, so that is one of my places. Uh, Alex uh, Quintana and his family immigrated from Chile. Yes, I know Alex, speak easy. <laughs> yes. So uh, I literally drive down Taylor Road about three and a half minutes and find my spot of comfort. <laughs> so walking and having a comfort drink are a very good thing to do uh, in today's fast-paced world. And Marcy, you've been reading an interesting book, How the Word is Passed, which is a lot of people have been talking about it. deals with how slavery has been central in shaping our collective history. What captivated you about that book? I try to read and learn as much as I can and as an immigrant I don't have um, a lot of information, right? I wasn't born and raised here. I wasn't educated. So when all of this, and what I do, right, is part of the diversity, equity, and inclusion kind of umbrella, right? But the reality is that I still have a lot to learn and unlearn. So um, as a journalist, I love reading. I love, you know, uh, looking for opportunities to learn more. And I I actually heard Brene Brown's podcast. She interviewed uh, Clinton uh, Smith, um, the author, and I, I just thought I, I needed to learn more. And the book is really hard to read. I haven't finished it yet. He kind of has a tour of, of the different plantations and kind of uh, explains the history. And again, I don't have any information about the history of the United States other than what you study when you have to do your naturalization citizenship test, which is a joke, really. Um, but so, so I'm learning about history, but I'm learning about history from the perspective of 
slavery, right? And how, you know, some rich, wealthy politicians or people were able to build this country based on free labor and abuse of, of, of slaves and of black people. And that to me is still something that I have a hard time even understanding because again, I'm not from here and, and I don't have all some of the some of the pre-information that people might have, whether against it or, or you know, um, I don't know how to say it, like some of the uh, prejudgment that you might have when you are in this country. I, I come from a, a slightly different environment. So um, it has been unbelievably hard to read. Um, and the other piece that really captivated me, Adan, that now that I think about it is the fact that you know, everything we do is because it's in a book or has been kind of transmitted somehow, but slaves, right, did not know how to read and write. Many of them did not have a way to pass their stories, their experiences. And what he does with this book, it almost helps a little bit reconstruct that story and, 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 and help us understand that that it has been erased because there wasn't a way to transmit it and to keep it in a record. And, and to me, that has been so powerful to, again, understand and realize that we can't see pictures of slaves because, of course, nobody would take a picture of it or nobody would write a book about them. Um, so, so much of it is just has been passed through words. And that's why it's important to, to uh, hear those narratives and to dig a little deeper from those erased stories um, that will make us better individuals and will eventually make us be in a better country. I'm just, I'm blown away by that book. But again, it's hard to read. It's not an easy reading. So I'm still digesting it and processing it. Sounds like a fascinating book, well worth reading. It's been a great pleasure having all of you join us today. Sarah Flannery, Shamika Jones-Taylor, Marcia Moreno, and Cheryl Stevens are four of the 15 winners of the Women of Note Award from Crane's Cleveland Business. There will be a ceremony celebrating their award coming up on July 21st at 4 p.m. You can attend virtually. It's a virtual event, so just go to our website, cranescleveland.com. On behalf of our producer, Cody Smith, I'm Dan Pilata. Always glad to have you join us, and we'll talk again soon.